side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? That was Pete Seeger singing the chorus of the old Union hymn, Which Side Are You On? In a politically fractured time, that seems to be the overwhelming question. Which side are you on? That is what we're talking about today. We are talking about the political divide in this country and how it affects Jews and how it affects Judaism. We will be talking with two American Jewish community leaders about how this divide has affected them personally and communally and whether we can do anything to heal the brokenness that exists within us. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. So let me start with this story. A man came to see me in my office. He was very distraught. His two adult daughters have cut off all communication with him. Why? Because they disagree politically. The parents are conservative. The children are far left. They have accused their parents of being racist, misogynistic, etc., Now, I know this man and his wife. It's true. They are political conservatives. But it also happens to be true that they are on the board of a soup kitchen and they give their time to serve food in a church that is located in one of the most impoverished areas of Palm Beach County. Yes, we disagree on policy issues and on party politics, but I know these people. These people are hardly racist. The man is crying. And he tells me through his tears that he is approaching 80 years old. Who knows how much time I have left? We want our children. We want our grandchildren. Our love for them is far bigger than a political party. This poor man, this poor family, my heart breaks for them. So I have to tell you that this story sat with me as I read David Bernstein's new book, Woke Antisemitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews, published by Wicked Son. David is a veteran Jewish communal leader, a classic liberal, as am I, and the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. I predict that this will be one of the most explosive books of the year, and for good reason. David Bernstein is my guest today, along with Rabbi Amy Walk, who is the spiritual leader of Temple Bethel in Springfield, Massachusetts. We're going to be talking about woke ideology, about anti-Semitism on the far left, about this thing called cancel culture, and how we as religious people make sense out of such complexity. We'll be right back. David, welcome to Martini Judaism. I have to say, I read your book uh, several times, and I liked it, and I was challenged by it. And as I mentioned to you, I agree with a lot of it. So there are questions that I have for you, and I'd like to make this into a discussion. I know you pretty well. We've been involved in some projects. We've talked a lot over the years. Why did you write the book? Well, first off, it's wonderful to be in conversation with you and Rabbi Walk two people I admire greatly. So let me just say that first. Um, I wrote the book because I have been in Jewish life my entire life. I have been the head of several Jewish organizations. 
I've been mostly on the center left side of the ledger. And I've always been proud to be in conversation with other Jews, with the larger society. I've done a lot of intergroup relations over the work over the years. And what prompted me to write this book was the sense that I could no longer debate issues over over issues that we should be able to agree, disagree on and disagree on agreeably. Um, I started to see some of my friends cut off ties like your friend did with his, or your friend's kids did with their, with your friend. I started feeling like um, we were being judged not by our character, but by the beliefs that we supposedly had. And sometimes those beliefs were being described falsely. I um, I started watching the deliberative process in the Jewish community short-circuited by people who seemed to have all the answers. And um, I watched as the philosophy of liberalism that you just said, that's the free expression of ideas, started to be eclipsed by what some people have called the successor ideology. An ideology, you could call it anything. I mean, all of them are controversial. Woke ideology, critical race ideology, critical social justice ideology, whatever you choose to call it is going to be controversial. But that ideology itself was making it harder for people to have conversations. So I thought it was time to write about it, to do something about it, and to see if we could reverse some of this trend. And I also, by the way, just because it's called woke anti-Semitism, I also started to feel that that it was spawning a new variant of anti-Semitism that made it easier to be an anti-Semite on the far left than it once had. It provided a permission structure for this new form of anti-Semitism. And I thought that was a really important thing to note and to start to do something about as well. You know, David, you and I have spoken about this so so much. Let me ask you something. First of all, uh, one of the things I said to you when the book came out is that my own problem with the term woke is that it's being now used in scare quotes by right-wingers, people who you and I just don't agree with. Mm-hmm. So h- what, what do we do about that? Is this, is this term irredeemable? Should, can, can we simply talk about, as I prefer to, far-left thinking and far-left ideology? So what I found in doing this work for a while and writing about it is that no term satisfies anybody, (laughs) anybody. Even people you agree with, it doesn't satisfy. Um, So I decided uh, to go with a term that most people had some vague semblance of understanding. When, When you hear the word woke, you usually understand that it means being aware of, woke to certain realities, systemic realities. Um, woke means, if I, you don't mind me defining it for one second, in my view, in the way that I use it at least, means uh, woke ideology means the that oppression and bias are not just a matter of personal attitude, but they are embedded in the very systems of structures of society. And that those who have experienced that oppression and that bias have greater insight and greater qualification to articulate that for the rest of society. Now, both of those things can be true. Both, uh, both oppression can be embedded in society and structures of society. You can't argue the idea that Jim Crow America had impression and bias sort of written to the very structures of society. Um, and it can be true that if you've experienced oppression, you might have something to say about it for the rest of the world. 
But but that doesn't mean that you have sort of an unqualified standing to articulate it. There has to be room for people to question it, to question you, to think that you might be wrong. And I think that's where it gets off track. It's it's weaponized in a way that shuts down people. So going back to your question, I don't think left-wing ideology on its own does it because there are left-wing ideologies I probably agree with. I mean, I think that everybody should have health care, for example. I think that, um, you know, I think that um, that, you know, people have should have uh, equal rights. Um, th- those are those can be considered left wing ideologies. I'm talking about something too particular to put under that rubric. Well, let me give you an example. Maybe this is a slight pushback. Mm-hmm. In recent weeks, as you know, the whole conversation about anti-Semitism has jumped into the center of our consciousness. And times have created the following situation that people are sometimes saying to me, well-meaning, non-Jewish friends of mine, that what you're experiencing as anti-Semitism is not really anti-Semitism. And my pushback has been, as a Jew, I do get to define that. And by the way, we're going to talk about how woke ideology harms the Jews. So can, can we... Can we extend that to other groups as well, that they own a kind of uh, uh, emotional space in which to define what hate feels like? Yeah, I I might push back against you and say, I actually don't think you or I get to define that. I think we get to express our views and people should listen to what we have to say because we've experienced things that they haven't. But that doesn't give any of us a monopoly on wisdom. Let me give you an example. I mean, I've experienced a lot of anti-Semitism just about in every form, you know, especially being in the Jewish world. Um, I've experienced it, you know, in high school, the kind of, you know, coin throwing at my feet, swastikas in my books form. I've experienced the anti-Zionist variety. So I, I would think that people would want to hear me out on my perspective. But then again, the Pew survey comes out with a study that says that um, American Jews are the most admired religious community of any other community. And I think to myself, that's a data point as well. My experience is a data point, but so is the Pew study. And so I have to be able to listen to other views. And it's also true that maybe my experience of anti-Semitism is not the same as yours or Rabbi Watts. And, and so therefore, none of us gets a complete carte blanche in defining it. And I think that's what, what, what happens in the rest of society as well. We, we have to listen. We should listen to a black person describe what they've gone through with the police and what their fears are. But, but we also have to look at the studies that people have done um, about policing and what it's actually producing and then try to come to the best opinions that we possibly can. See, what I love about you and what I love about your work is that you're all about nuance. And what is missing right now in so many of our larger conversations in our society and within our community is that that sense of nuance. So here's the thing. Yes, anti-Semitism is on the rise. And yes, we are the most admired religious group. And both of those things are simultaneously true. Right. And hard to square, but true. So let's, let me ask you something. We're, we're talking about woke ideology. The part of your book that I agreed with the most and that I really centered in on is how woke ideology harms the Jews. I've been following this for years, and I have the T-shirt and the scars to show for it, going back to when I was in college. So tell me, tell me about the anti-Semitism that we now find 
on the far left. It's very popular to talk about the stuff on the right. Let's balance this. What what are we feeling on the left here? Yeah, so what we're feeling on the left is an ideology or a dogma that gives rise to certain conspiracy theories that can can be very hard to challenge. And that's one of the reasons why I think we have to call it out. Um, people don't like to talk about woke ideology, and they might even consider it a kind of racism or privilege or to do so. So, in, And so it makes it harder to address a form of anti-Semitism we're seeing around ourselves. Um, whenever you have an ideology that, that states that it knows exactly who the oppressed are and who the oppressors are, and it links your identity as a person, your identity as a as a Jewish person, a black person, a Latino person, a woman, a man, uh, a gay person, to to oppression or oppressed. In other words, you're either by virtue of that identity oppressed or an oppressor. I think you're asking for a form of anti-Semitism because in that worldview that holds that there are oppressed oppressors, Jews are likely, on average going to be succeeding in most professions more than than many other groups in society. And if you're going to say that the only reason why somebody is oppressed is be, uh, only reason why some groups are lacking behind others on various metrics is because of discrimination and oppression, that's the only possible reason, then you're also saying that the people that are doing better on average are doing so on the backs of those oppressed groups. I think that that's problematic. And you can see it and hear it in various uh, conversations that take place. A few years ago at Stanford University, a Stanford student senator said that he didn't think saying that Jews were controlling the media or banks was anti-Semitic. And he was brought to a hearing before the Stanford Student Senate. Um, and during that time, when everybody was accusing him of anti-Semitism, rightly, I think, um, there were other students who said, yes, but we still have to be able to talk about the intersection between white privilege and Jewish privilege. And nobody said anything about that. So what we've done is created a permission structure, a vocabulary that allows people to say virtually the same thing, but without any scrutiny because it's considered, it's, it's considered covered in sort of the, these, this new ideological frame. So I think that's why we're facing a new form of anti-Semitism. And I think we, we're experiencing it when whenever these controversies emerge, like the one at Berkeley Law School, which we could go into, um, and some of the conflict around Israel and the Palestinians that's gone off the guardrails. I think we're experiencing it in those circumstances. And it's and and I think a lot of Jews know there's a problem, but they just don't know how to describe it. You know, the Israel-Palestinian situation. I think has erupted even more so in recent weeks since the elections mm -hmm. in which those of us who are liberal Zionists are really very much on the defensive about Israel. Can you say more about that and how that's playing out uh, on the uh, left? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me just say to say that there's a problem in the discourse and that, that, uh, that this ideology is inflaming the problem on the left in ways that get expressed in anti-Israelism or anti-Zionism doesn't mean that Israel is free of all culpability. It doesn't mean that Israel is not doing things that deserve scrutiny. You know, I think uh, there are people who have been elected, Ben Gvir and others who uh, in Israel who deserve to be scrutinized, and and um, and it's completely legitimate to criticize their election and what they represent. Uh, that said, we've been watching. 
more extreme sentiment being expressed toward Israel, denial of Israel's very right to exist, delegitimization and demonization of Israel that uh, that we've always seen and heard, but are sort of being amplified in the current discussion because you have a you have this binary oppressed oppressor worldview that's gaining ground in ever larger swaths of society. And that then is being applied in a very simplistic way to, to Israel. And I think um, it doesn't help us understand what's going on there. And that's certainly not going to help us solve the conflict over time. You know, it's really interesting you say this because in the wake of the elections, a, a number of my Jewish friends, including a number of my colleagues, have basically said, that's it. I'm done. I'm walking away from Israel. I'm not going back to visit. I've had it. And my response has been, you know, it's really interesting. When Donald Trump won in 2016, I did not say, I'm done with this country. We don't have the luxury to do that. In fact, if anything, I am now doubling down on the institutions in Israel that I am supporting and the NGOs that I am supporting. It's almost as if this is being used as an excuse by some people to, uh, I'm taking my, my soccer ball and I'm walking off. Okay, so we're going to be back. Uh, we'll be right back as we welcome my friend and colleague, Rabbi Amy Walk. And once again, uh, this is Martini Judaism. I'm Rabbi Jeff Salkin, and I'm here with Rabbi Amy Walk and David Bernstein. We'll be right back. I cried when they shot Medgar Evers. Tears ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy. Though I'd lost a father of mine But Malcolm X got what was coming He got what he asked for this time So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Get it? That was the late lamented Phil Oaks in concert More than... 50 years ago, with his song, Love Me, I'm a Liberal. You know, many of you don't know this about me. How could you know this about me? I'm a guitar player, and I used to sing in coffee houses when I was in college. I sang that song way into the late 1970s after it had totally ceased being relevant. But what Phil was talking about was what we used to call limousine liberals, the sort of people who would proudly tell you that they were for civil rights, but as for black militancy, Malcolm X, that was too far. I chose that snippet from that song, not only because I love Phil Oaks, but because I sense that that particular version of being a liberal has eroded. The center left isn't what it used to be. In fact, the center is not holding. I describe myself as being a centrist, but that's becoming an increasingly narrow place to stand, and that's why I sometimes slip and fall. And so, yes, my two friends are with me today. We're talking about this. This is a hard one. This is a hard topic. David Bernstein, author of the new book, Woke Antisemitism, which I really recommend, and my friend and colleague, Rabbi Amy Walk. Uh, Rabbi Walk, welcome to Martini Judaism. You know, you and I first met, I have a memory of sitting with you at a table at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem and studying with you. And what I love about the Hartman Institute is that it's trained us and so many rabbis and educators to think critically about the most crucial issues facing the Jewish people. But 
we also bonded, we found each other to be kindred spirits over our joint, now I'm not really sure what the word is here, dissent, discomfort, dyspepsia, something that starts with the letter D, about the more radical leftist manifestations of contemporary Jewish life. So, Rabbi Walk, what's your story? What What's your deal? How do you describe your own Jewish and political journey? So first, I want to thank you for having me on the show. And I actually want to remind you that when we met, I said to you, you're the Jeff Salkin, because I've read and been a fan of your writing for a very long time. And part of what I've always appreciated about your writing is, is that you question what everybody else is taking as a given. And that's been my story. Politically, I've, I've, never, I've never said I'm conservative and I've never said I'm liberal. I have always just been in the center. Um, I grew up in Chicago, and if you know much about Chicago politics, you know that the Democratic Party ran the city, and it was, um, it, it was, you know, the mayor, Mayor Daley was not known for his honesty in politics. So I wasn't raised in this home that said, we love the Democrats no matter what. I was raised and thought, taught to ask questions and to be critical and to care most about the character of the politician. And I, I've actually... It was at Hartman and a lesson with Yehuda Kurtzer that I could articulate it so clearly that for me, the character of whoever it is in office will take me, I can live with policies I don't like. I can't live with character that, that I find odious or, or, or corrupt. And so that's where I am. Like, man, when I want to just say that when I was raising children, my children actually never knew who I voted for because I wanted to raise them to think about issues Right. And so we would talk about the issues and they would say, you know, mommy, who are you going to vote for? And I would say, mommy's going to vote for the politician who I think is going to ensure health care for everybody or whatever the issue was at the day that we were talking about. That that was just that's always been my approach. You're very rare in this world. Uh, I, I guess I guess the three of us are very rare, though. I love finding more people who agree with us. And sometimes they are. Well, we'll talk about this later. Sometimes they're just afraid to come out of the shadows. Rabbi, you've got a particularly poignant and personal story to tell regarding the state of conversation in the Jewish world today. And I asked you if we could talk about it. It's in the book, soon to become a major motion picture. You want to tell us what went down with your son? I absolutely do. So um First of all, I have three children, and my middle son, Gabriel, graduated from college about 18 months ago, and Gabriel is conservative politically. He is a conservative Jew with a capital C and a conservative thinker with a small c. And when he graduated from college, the job he was offered was remote, and so I knew living in my basement wouldn't be good for him. And I suggested that he think about living in a Moisha house, that that would be a structured way to go live anywhere in the country where he would find community, he could do his remote work, and he could flourish the way you want your 21-year-old child to flourish. And he actually took my suggestion, which was already a shocking thing in and of itself, but he liked the idea because he really loves the Jewish community and his Judaism really matters to him. So... He, after an interview process, he went to live in the Moisha house. And when he went to live in that Moisha house, my then fiance and I helped him move to the city. And it was a city he had no connection to in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it was like there was no, nothing in that city that said, come live with me, except for the Moisha house. We got there on a Sunday. We helped him set up his room on Monday and Tuesday. 
Wednesday morning, we said goodbye after breakfast. We flew back our own ways. Thursday night at 7 o'clock or at 8 o'clock, Gabriel calls me hysterical, just hysterical. And he says, I have to move out. My roommates want me to move out. And I thought, how much, how much of a mess could you have left in 24 hours? I told you to put the seat down. He was living with two women. I, like, I couldn't figure out. And I thought, oh, he's exaggerating. Well, it turns out the night before on Wednesday night, the kids had had their first session. And in the conversation, Gabriel was asked who he worked for. And he worked for a military contractor at the time. And then they, they said things to him about his politics. And Gabriel's used to keeping his politics in his pocket. Like he's used to not sharing to the world what he thinks because, listen, he and I often don't agree, but, but in other settings, he's, he's learned that it's dangerous. Well, P.S., the girls learned of his politics and they couldn't live with him. And the folks at the Moshe house defended that. And basically they would have thrown him out, period. And he would have lost everything he, he spent moving to that city. But I interfered. My oldest daughter actually said to me, Mom, this is one of those moments you need to, you need to become the rabbi that you are. And I wrote a letter to the executive director of Moshe House. The executive director of Moshe House responded to me promptly and quickly. And I think he actually even knows that what happened to Gabriel was vile and wrong and never should have happened. I believe that. And I want to say the staff working for Moisha House treated Gabriel in an extremely disrespectful way. And the whole situation, like I felt this major sense of betrayal, like the Jewish community that I had spent the last 30 years devoting myself to and creating community and making room for people. I felt like it had totally let me down when my 21 year old said, I want to live in Jewish community. And they said, no. Your ideas are too odious to live with us. And he was thrown out. So he moved there. And within 10 days, he had moved, he had relocated to another city. And obviously, he wants nothing to do with Moisha House. And frankly, I can't say I blame him. I quite agree. The first time you told me that, I was moved to tears. Seeing it in print, hearing it again, it just shakes me because there's like this, this communal collusion in this, and I'm sure we're going to be getting a lot of letters and emails on on this, uh, probably from the staunch supporters of Moisha House. I want to bring David back into the conversation. David, what's your response to this story? Is it typical? Is it unusual? Is it is there something in the air, as Thunderclap Newman would have sung? Yeah, there's probably something in the air. You know, I got to meet Gabriel. I've, we've had two meals together. Um, he's a, a unbelievably articulate young man. I think it's, you know, it was a major mistake. I hope that they're taking steps. I've heard they're taking steps to try to change the culture in the organization. But, you know, we'll see. Proof's in the pudding. Um, I do think, though, that, that it reflects something. I mean, I'd be shocked. I, I, I could tell you, I could pretend to be shocked, but I wasn't shocked. You know, to hear that um, increasingly people are using politics as a litmus test for engagement in all sorts of institutions. We're seeing this in polls that groups like mine, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, have taken of likely voters and so forth, where people are increasingly using politics as a litmus test for all sorts of engagement. And I feel it in, you know, on social media, people that I might have formally disagreed with on some things are now very snarky and very mean-spirited in how they talk to me because I've crossed some imaginary line in their view. So I think um, I think that the culture has changed. 
Um, political scientists like to call it political sorting, a sorting process that's forcing people neatly into tribes in ways that they might not have been before. We've always had political tribes, but they've always been a bit more uh, fluid. And I think that they're becoming much more rigid. Rabbi Walk, do you have these conversations with your colleagues uh, in the conservative movement? And if so, what's the content of this discussion on topics like this? You know, some of my colleagues will agree with me and some of my colleagues will feel my frustration and feel my pain. And others will gently say that I'm not seeing straight because I'm no gay abadivar, because 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 I'm Gabriel's mom, I'm not really understanding how 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 difficult it must have been for these two young girls to live with someone like Gabriel. And frankly, those folks I can't talk to anymore because that's so misguided. I mean, I can talk to them, but I don't I don't I don't listen to what they have to say about this issue because I feel like they've drunk a Kool-Aid. And and they're not they're not thinking about the whole issue. And the truth of the matter is the colleagues who I can disagree with on on social justice issues, but who can understand why what happened to Gabriel was wrong, those are the folks who I listen to because I don't want I don't agree with my son, but I will defend his but I will defend his right to engage in the Jewish community because he's bright and articulate and he cares and he's passionate and why should everybody agree with me? Like, who said that I had the owner's manual to truth? It's really an amazing idea that people who say that you are Nogea Badavar, that you are an interested party, that you cannot possibly separate yourself from this issue, when the patois on the cultural left is essentially that the people who are hurt own the issue. Right. Right? And yet— right. And yet your your response as the mother is being radically discounted here. Yes, that's 100% correct. I mean, it was actually shocking to me. So, David, what's the role of mainstream Jewish organizations in this entire problem, in this communicative structure, and what should it be? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. One is that we have to practice what we preach around viewpoint diversity. I think there's a lot of people who, a lot of organizations who say, they believe in viewpoint diversity, but once challenged with a viewpoint they don't like, they realize you realize that they're not really serious about it. They love viewpoint diversity, but it's diverse points of view they don't like very much. Um, and um, and so I think that they've got to recommit to uh, to this idea. And in Jewish terms, it's machloket l'shem shemayim, arguments for the sake of heaven. I think that's got to be a core value of Jewish institutional life. Or you're going to be shutting out a lot of Gabriels from the Jewish world, and that's a tragedy. Um, the second thing is I think we've got to also understand that that there is radicalism in our own ideological camp. I think we're entering a period not unlike the early part of this 20th century with dominant ideologies that tr pretend to explain all of reality. You know, it used to be communism and fascism and nationalism. And today it might be replacement theory, the idea that, you know, that immigrants are replacing ordinary white people and that Jews are doing some of the replacing. And it may be woke ideology on the left that, that views society as a binary of oppressor versus oppressed. And, um, and we, we've got to now say, listen, anti-Semitism is, is part and parcel of these 
these conspiracy theories that pretend to explain all the world, and that includes those which, which we might even feel in our own ranks. That's why it's so hard um, for so many Jewish organizations. They're, they're worried, worried, maybe rightly so, about alienating some of their own stakeholders who might agree with the ideology. But I think what we can expect from Jewish organizations is to take it seriously. If they're going to fight anti-Semitism, they've got to fight it in all its manifestations. And that includes on the left. And that means naming the ideologies and the causes be, so that they're able to actually identify the right approaches. We're going to talk about how we can fix this and what the Jewish uh, healing mechanisms might be. But David, in your book, you mentioned several cases in which there were fellow liberals and leftists who said to you that there should be open discussion of these issues, but they were afraid for their reputations and their relationships. By the way, I'm one of them. Hmm. I'm just going to put that out there. I don't like hurting people. Everyone likes to be loved or at least liked. Uh, to what extent are you experiencing this cone of silence that people are entering into when it comes to these issues? Yeah, I experience it all the time because I've sort of outed myself in this process. So now I'm one of the people that is identifiable. So if you're somebody in the Jewish world who feels that uh, that you can't say what's on your mind, that feels that your institutional culture has become too stifling, you might turn to me because I'm, I'm, I've been expressing concern about this for some time. So I get a lot of it. And um, I hear from, let's say, a headmaster of a Jewish day school that thanks me for questioning the way that anti-racism is being taught in certain Jewish settings. They, they share my view, but don't feel that they... Uh, have the ability to challenge it. So they just sort of go along with it. Um, there are times when I've, I've been ready to, to interview someone on a podcast about what they've gone through and the very last second they pull out because they're worried that it'll actually lead to their, you know, career problems for them and maybe even being fired. Um, one time I met with a group of Jewish women about 50 blocks away from most of them live in Manhattan because they were worried that if they were seen with me, it might alert their schools, the private schools, the Jewish schools where their kids go to, that there could, uh, that they, they might be part of opposition to the way that some of these issues are being treated in their own schools and, and they'll, their kids will face the consequences of that. So that's what I've experienced um, in talking to various people and it's trying to support them from behind the scenes and, and encouraging some of them when they can to really be willing to go a little bit public. So this is called cancel culture. And I'm wondering, is there cancel culture that comes from the right as well within the Jewish community? Sure. I mean, I think if you looked at the issue of Israel over the years, Jews who were willing to challenge the Israeli government policy could be shut down. Um, and, um, and so they stifled dissent. And it's interesting, though, to me that some of the people who rightly called that out, who rightly said that we needed internal cultural change in the Jewish community, are sometimes the same people who are now willing to stifle dissent when it comes from the other side of the political spectrum. So I think that you see it on both sides in the Jewish community. And of course, you see it in the broader, the broader country as well. You see right wing uh, cancel culture. Um, I think it's different. I don't think we should compare the two. The right has a lot of its own problems. Um, 
you know, uh, Jonathan Rauch, the great uh, political thinker and writer, likes to say that, um, and I think you heard him say it, uh, Rabbi Salkin, if I'm not mistaken, that radicalism on the right is like a heart attack and on the left is like a cancer. I think that that's true. They're different in nature. They operate differently. Um, and, and so we shouldn't conflate the two exactly. I don't think that they're the same, but there, there are some similar qualities on how ideology is imposed on both ends of the political spectrum. You know, if I look at the broad American political spectrum, I've often used that the fact, and I like to use alliteration, that the right has the weapons, the left has the words. Hmm. Many of the injuries, wounds, and deaths that have taken place in our society as recently as yesterday in Colorado Springs have come from radical conservatives and radical right-wingers who do real physical damage to people. In terms of the left, however, much of the damage is in reputation, relationships, sometimes in careers. What happened to Gabriel? Uh, is an example of that, and it's very painful. It's it's not the way the Jewish world is supposed to be put together. So, Rabbi, I want to just shift it back to you. I'm going to ask you to play rabbi for a second. Um, David used a wonderful term, the, the notion of machlochet l'shem shamayim, a controversy uh, for the sake of heaven, a sacred controversy. What are the Jewish cures for cancel culture? What are the Jewish lessons that we should be bringing into the larger conversation in the Jewish world that will create a healthier body politic? So I, I actually want to take it back to Moshe House for a minute, if I could. Go right in ahead. In the time that Gabriel was in the midst, in the times that he was in the city in a really toxic environment, I was mama bear only. And all I was thinking about is how do I extract my son and put him in a place where he can flourish and thrive? A week after he was out... I reached out to the CEO of Moisha House and I said, now I'm rabbi, because now I'm Rabbi Amy Walk, who cares deeply about the discourse in the Jewish community and sees a toxicity because everybody wants to hear exactly what they believe. And actually, that's antithetical to Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition is actually about hearing things that you don't agree with and expanding your mind and pushing yourself. It's the oldest form of a Jewish idea, right? It's like machlokat l'shem shemayim. And I, 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 I offer to fund a program called Machloket Matters, which comes from Pardes, but lots of Jewish organizations have something like that. Machloket Matters is this idea of like, you know what? I don't know what the right answer is, but let's learn to engage in discourse and conversation. And I pitched it and I said, you know what's really great about this? This could be, you could take the fact that there is a um, pandemic and you could do this on Zoom. And so you could take three people from Chicago and three people from New York and three people, and you could create a group, a cohort of 25 people of your Moisha House fellows. And you could probably get the best Pardes teachers, like not me, like, like somebody who is not, like get the best who know that curriculum to help push that agenda. Get Yossi Klein Levy to teach letters to my Palestinian neighbor, right? Like in other words, cultivate that teaching because here you've got these kids who are living in subsidized homes, right? Because if you really want to bring it to the Jewish community, get to that next generation. So does Judaism have a response to this? Yeah, it's at the heart of our tradition, right? It's the it's hearing both perspectives and being uncomfortable and recognizing there's not like one truth or one solution because if there were, we all would have agreed on it a long time ago and it wouldn't be 
the, the issue that plagues our society, whatever that is, whatever it is you're talking about. That's at the heart of our tradition. You know, in the current issue of Sapir Journal, that's S-A-P-I-R journal.org, uh, Rabbi David Wolpe adds to what you said, and he talks about the sacred idea of Elu Elu, that both these and these are the words of the living God, that we have to see possibilities and nuances, and we have to realize that many of these ideas are refractions of the holy. And it reminds me of the way that the classic rabbinic Bible, the Mikraot Gadolot, is arranged, which is a quintessential piece of Jewish typography, which is that you have the text in the middle of the page, and it's surrounded by commentators who lived in different times and places and who would probably dislike each other, but they all coexist on the same page. We, as a Jewish community don't have the luxury of kicking people to the curb. The American Jewish community, I think, needs to be as large a tent as possible, and it needs to, as you've pointed out, model and teach our young people how to have civil conversations on difficult topics. We'll be right back. We've delved into what David Bernstein calls woke ideology, simple, radical, leftist ideology. And what attracted me to the book is something that I've known about for a long time, and I don't want this to get lost. And it's simply that the radical left has, for many years, has had a problem with the Jews and with Judaism, and it goes back to Karl Marx. And I think David rightly figured something out. If we were to trace back this current wave of extreme leftist anti-Semitism, it would go back to Durban, South Africa, 2001, the World Conference Against Racism, which was, I've coined this phrase, it was a Woodstock of Israel blaming, it was a renewal of the Zionism as racism canard, and blatant anti-Semitic imagery. And right now, there are 10 people who are saying, but what about the anti-Semitism on the right? Well, we've talked about that, and it's there, and it's lethal. But here's the problem. The further to the left you go, and to the, the further to the right you go, you find that those ideologies intersect in Jew hatred. On the left, Jews are privileged. On the right, Jews are elitists. It's the same Jews. Now, where do we find this? Where does this come from? I think that... Our nation's political extremes can find their roots back in Europe. The extreme right, I think, traces itself back, whether it knows it or not, to European fascism in the 1930s. But the extreme left actually goes back to Moscow circa 1950. The Zionism is racism resolution at the UN in 1975, that was a product of the Soviet Union. That hateful ideology came with a full helping of Russian dressing on the side. And it's only gotten worse. That's why someone once referred to anti-Semitism as the socialism of fools. Well, I'm going to get back to the story with which I began, and it's also Gabriel's story. There are a lot of stories like this out there. It's where people actually refuse to talk to each other 
because of their political disagreements, where we make each other radically other. And I think that one of the major takeaways from David's book is that one of the most toxic flaws of the current political atmosphere is the marginalization and silencing of those who dissent from far leftist ideology. And we have to understand that those dissenters agree that there are persistent problems in our society. But as David has made clear, there's no one single philosophical or political interpretation that fits all cases. And secondly, we can agree to disagree on how to deal with these issues. There was a rabbi's letter that David helped create. It was a missive on the subject of open dialogue. It was sponsored by the Jewish Institute of Liberal Values, and I love this line. I actually might want this to be put on my tombstone. We all need space to be tentative, to be wrong and change our minds, to wonder and to explore. That's the Jewish world in which I want to live. You know, friends, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. Probably by the time you hear this podcast, Thanksgiving will have come and gone, and I'm hoping that everyone will have had a great Thanksgiving. But here is something very important. There is a real major probability that someone at your Thanksgiving table is going to radically disagree with your interpretation of the world. I only hope that you passed the stuffing and the gravy to that person, that you didn't spill the gravy on that person's lap deliberately. We're a large family. We're a small people. We can't afford to throw each other under the bus. The Jewish world I want to live in is a world where we can have these conversations. And at the end of the day, we can say, please pass the dark meat. This has been Rabbi Jeff Salkin. My friends have been with me today, David Bernstein, Rabbi Amy Walk. I'm the rabbi at Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. If you're in the neighborhood this winter, come visit us. We'll have dinner probably at around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. This has been Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, this is the podcast version. So I invite you to follow my regular column of the same name, Martini Judaism, on religionnews.com. The producer is Jay Woodward, and we get production assistance from Lance Roger Axt. Elsie Owen keeps the engine running smoothly. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. You Downs used to say at the end of 2020, we're in touch, so you stay in touch. We're in touch. Let's be in touch with each other. Thanks. Shalom. Bye-bye.